Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am very honored to have a really experienced leadership coach, someone who works with CEOs all the time on some of the courses that he runs, but also he's got a great background in business and also in rugby, where he was a captain of the rugby Scottish team and had some very successful uh episodes and gongs to his name. Talking of gongs, he also got an OBE for all that he's done for society and for sport and for society as general. But uh, without further ado, I'll hand over and let him explain what he's doing now. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, I, I suppose my day job is I work as the managing partner of a business called the School for CEOs, which uh, was set up by myself and Patrick McDonald, uh, gosh, back in 2011 now. And, and the premise is to uh, try and help uh, business leaders become more effective business leaders by learning from other business leaders. So we have a, a faculty of 120 chief execs, chairs, non-exec directors who come and share their experiences and war stories. Uh, but increasingly, we've extended that work into um Inclusive leadership, we believe inclusive leadership is a really important element of uh, what makes an effective leader in, in an organization. And we uh, have other um, capabilities. I've been coaching, as you said, working as, a, as an executive coach now for, gosh, over 22 years, which is slightly scary when you say it out loud. Um, and uh, I do a lot of work with teams uh, and, and executive teams and boards to help them be more effective in, in what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis in their businesses. Um, and we also do a little bit of um, profiling and assessment. So we've got a, a fairly broad uh, service offering and uh, yeah, a bunch of colleagues who uh, really enjoy working with. Oh, well, David Hill, it's lovely having you here on the on the series. And, and particularly for me, it's always been very interesting as I was getting into leadership and executive coaching um you were in organizations like Pricester and the change partnership which i was always watching what you were doing because it was quite early days i came into coaching when i was working in pricewaterhousecoopers and had just left the army about, about about like you about 25 years ago and i met these people who were called coaches and i went that's just strange and and they took the the pwc partnership board we we all went to i think sweden to some islands in sweden and they started to do this coaching thing with them and i went this is so cool. I could do this. I really like what they're doing. And, and so I think both of us were there at the beginning of what, what was happening. And uh, your, your reputation in the industry is very high. You know, you're, you're seen there as sort of someone that people admire and respect, particularly for the humility and the humanity of all that you've achieved and all the things you do. You're also chair of the Worldwide Cancer Research and you've done an awful lot, hence your OBE people recognize what you've put back into society. But also, I think the rugby side is so very interesting. Um, do you want to just say, you know, how you draw back on your rugby experience and your uh, your experience in the uh, uh, organizations in the alcohol industry? I'll call it that. I don't know how you describe it, but the drinks industry. Um, how, how you bring all that experience together with your leadership coaching. There's a nice blend of all sorts of experiences there, aren't there? Sure. I, I don't think there's anything explicit <clears throat> that uh, I bring from my experiences in sport. I, uh, you know, you have to remember that I'm old enough to have played in the amateur era of rugby, uh, where you know we did it for fun, we did it for enjoyment, and it was our our recreation um, that we we did on a Saturday afternoon, and you know trained on a Tuesday or a Thursday night to prepare for that. And you know, the keep the more keen and, and enthusiastic amongst us did a bit of extra training on a Monday and a Wednesday, but. Um, you know, it was recreational. So we all had to have jobs. And I was 
fortunate enough to work in the Scotch whisky industry for what, nine years. And then latterly, after Guinness and Grand Met merged to form Diageo, I, I spent another two years doing an international role for them. Um, and that was a, a, a brilliant uh, experience. Just, you know, you, you might think that the, the, the drinks industry would be quite a fun place to work, given the, the product. And you'd be absolutely right. You know, we were very proud of our brands. And for a Scotsman to work in the Scotch whisky industry, uh, you know, it's just like a, a dream come true, really. Um, <clears throat> and, but I think <clears throat> you know, the time, the period that I was playing rugby for Scotland, um, you know, I was very fortunate to work with some outstanding coaches. And as my my first experience of business coaching was uh, during a change program that United Distillers were going through. And we all learned how to uh, build a kind of rudimentary coaching skill set as a leader. Uh, and it, it really resonated for me because people like Sir Ian McGeehan, uh, you know, adopted those approaches naturally and intuitively. Uh, and I'm convinced that that was one of the reasons why he was and remains, you know, one of the most successful coaches uh, in the world. Um, Jim Telfer, a very different approach, uh, <clears throat> a schoolmaster to, to trade and, you know, took a very sort of directive approach, but, but as a blend and as a compliment, uh, you know, they were a, a, an ideal team to work together with a bunch of people who came from, you know, extraordinarily different backgrounds. You had Gary Armstrong, who was a lorry driver. You had Finley Galder, who was a grain trader. You had Chris Gray, who was a dentist. <clears throat> and so you had all of these different and diverse backgrounds, as I say, coming together uh, on a Saturday afternoon and pulling on a blue shirt and and trying to you know, do well for the country and the sort of 5 million or 6 million people who are following us. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of things where you can look at leadership and teamwork and, and bringing, uh, you know, people together behind a common purpose and behind a common ambition and dream for you in a team environment, in a sporting environment. Um, and lots of characteristics and attributes which which lend themselves really well to that. Mm. But also there's there, there's some significant differences you know i think you know sport tends to be very binary in outcomes uh you know you either win or you lose uh, okay you can draw but you know that the 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 outcomes are really clear uh, and it's also very event based you you're playing for a in a five nations or as a six nations now or a world cup and so you're building and peaking or trying to peak for those specific events whereas you know, in business, it's much more relentless. Uh, okay, you have year ends, but but you know the, the pressure never comes off. The the dial still keeps uh, turning up, and the bar still keeps being raised. So, um, you know, I think there are, as I say, there are some really strong similarities and and things that you can learn from sport, um, mm -hmm. and particularly you know from a values based. Uh, perspective you know I think uh, the the values in the sport that I played are are really strong and uh, really do translate exceptionally well into the work environment um, and those are really important aspects of you know how you build strong teams and and absolutely consistent whatever walk of life you're in mm, no it's fascinating and then we were talking earlier about inspire leaders that uh, you know you've known but also qualities that you've picked up in all the CEOs that you had through your programs. And uh, you gave a call out for Patrick McDonald, who, who was uh, the CEO of John Menzies and had also set the CEOs, um, the school for, uh, for CEOs up with you. Um, what, what are the kind of qualities that you admire in people that you describe as inspiring leaders? Are there some things that have stood out for you in business? Yeah, I think, top of the list has to be emotional intelligence you know it has to be uh you know leaders who are emotionally intelligent i think uh, are the ones who you know i suppose i'm drawn towards or, or um have a, a really strong affiliation with and uh, you know undoubtedly that you know you've got to be smart to be a ceo of, a, of an organization you've got to have a you know book smarts you've got to have intellect you've got to have kind of that that intellectual rigor um but the ones, you know, organizations are based on people and, and based around people. And if you can't um, inspire, mobilize, create followership amongst your people, 
then you're going to struggle. And I think the ability to connect with not only your CFO or your chair or whoever it is on the board, but also the person who might be, you know, collecting trolleys in a in a car park or unloading a lorry of you know full of bricks or building a wall or doing yeah, and inspiring at every level of the organization. It's it's you know the great uh, Kipling poem, you know, if you can walk with kings yet not lose the common touch. Uh, it it's leaders who have that ability to um you know, make people feel great about themselves. I, I remember being at an event in Hong Kong uh, with Sir Tom McKillop, who had been chief exec of AstraZeneca and at the time was chairman of RBS. Um, you know, when you were in his company, he made he made you feel really important, and he always demonstrated that he he felt you know you were really in, he was really interested in you and uh, was curious about you know who you were, what you did, and for you know three to five minutes, you'd have a conversation with him, and he then you know, in a, in a brilliant way, sort of exit the conversation and go and move on to the next person and manage his way around the crowd absolutely brilliantly. But for that, for those three or five, three or five minutes, you felt that you were the most important person in the world to him. And that made you feel really good. And I think it's that ability to uh, really connect with people um, and just this, understand the simplest things can have the biggest impact. I remember when... Um, I was lucky enough to leave Scotland to the Grand Slam in 1990. Um, I got a letter from uh, Anthony Greener, who was at, the time, at that point the chairman of Guinness, and and he you know had taken the time to sit down and and write a you know, two page letter, handwritten note to me, saying how proud he was that I was a colleague of his, but equally how disappointed he was as an Englishman that you know I'd given them a you know, we'd given them a good cuffing. Um, but, you know, for him to take the time and spend, you know, five or ten minutes penning a handwritten note to me, I thought, you know, that's really impressive. And and I really valued that. And it made me feel really great uh, mm. about it. And you know, so having that sort of ability, uh, I thought was, you know, fantastic. And, and you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that I think leaders should really look to emulate. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. When you meet someone who really makes you feel like you're the only person in the room, but then they have that ability to seamlessly move on to someone else without making you feel you've been worked over yeah, yeah. is is um or the person who goes hello david yes very interesting and they're looking over your yeah. sort of shoulder at the drinks party for someone more interesting yeah. than you yeah. Uh, yeah. and happen, perhaps it never happens to you but it certainly oh, no, ha- happens ha- happens all the time happens all the time okay well look in your life journey, I'm sure there's moments where that might have happened. But um, I'd love to hear just in uh, a bit of time about the life journey that that you went on and how it shaped you, some of the people who influenced you to be the leader you are today, to do the things you do, um, because it, it it is fascinating. Everybody has a unique story, but it, it explains a lot about the kind of leader they are today. So would you just tell us a bit? Oh, how far back do you want to go, Jonathan? Go back to childhood, how you brought up in West Aberdeenshire. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, as you say, I was brought up in West Aberdeenshire and uh, my uh, two sisters are a good bit older than me. So it, it, it felt a little bit like I was an only child uh, because I say my sisters were nine and 13 years older than me. So they sort of disappeared off to school and university or, or you know, life uh, as I was growing up. Um, but I had a, you know, very sort of, happy time you know, in the hills of West Aberdeenshire it's a glorious place to to live and to and to be brought up um I went away to boarding school uh my prep school from eight to probably about the age of 12 I hated I was uh, you know not particularly keen on um I th- mainly being away from my dog my Jack Russell Terrier rather than my parents um but uh you know the last couple of years when you're you become a big fish in a small pond that that becomes uh, a little bit more appealing and you know you get to play in the cricket team and the rugby team and the hockey team and all these sorts of things and sport was a really important part of um you know my life uh, from a very early age i went on to uh, glen armand after that and uh, sport continued to be a really important part of my life uh, there and uh, you know in some respects you know we we talk a lot on our programs about role models and leaders as role models you know the the sporting or the people who are successful in sports, you know, were role models for me 
uh, and they were the sort of people that I aspired to be as I as I was growing up. And and they had special things so that, for example, when you got into the first 15, you got to wear white shorts with your blue jersey as opposed to blue shorts with your blue jersey in, in all the other teams. And, and that was you know, something which marked someone apart. And, and so it became you know, a target to aim for for me and, and something to aspire to. Um, and so I, I was I became really focused on that. And as I say rugby was my my sport and and what I really aspired to. And I was lucky enough to be elevated. Uh, there was an injury in the team um, for a particularly important match against one of the Edinburgh schools. Uh, and I got elevated from the under 16 team, which was un, unheard of in those days. You know, you played at your age group level, uh, but I got picked up from the under 15, under 16s and put into the first 15 to play against you know 18 year olds in this Edinburgh side. Uh, and, but I got to, I got to wear my white shorts. I got to go and buy my white shorts from the sports shop, and that was a really sort of seminal moment for me, and, and a, a moment which it really felt that I'd made it um, in that regard. So you know those those sorts of things were, mm-hmm. were the things which really drove me at school. I was um, I, I had aspirations to be a vet. I think in my teens, having been a, an avid reader of the James Herriot novels uh, and you know living in the country and thought that would be a fantastic um career to pursue but uh, I, I guess I wasn't as particularly oriented towards the sciences as compared to languages and uh, you know I'm, I made my choices based on my career aspiration to be a vet um but I think that was probably the one thing that I would change in in life um, if I had the opportunity to to you know go, go around again, um, I much preferred languages, uh, and I was be- probably better at languages as well, um, and so I'd, I'd have pursued that. But it took me down a certain route. Um, when I was choosing my universities, I, I sat an Oxbridge exam, but was clearly not smart enough uh, to do languages uh, to do sciences at, at Cambridge. Um, <clears throat> so didn't get in there. It, it was coupled with the, or unfortunately, the year that I applied to Magdalen to to do that, they they had a change of admissions tutor, uh, who wanted to get rid of the image of Magdalen being a, a college for, you know, rugby players and cricketers, <clears throat> which was the principal reason why I had applied to Magdalen. <clears throat> so um, you know that was a bit of a shame. Uh, so I I then looked at uh, my my UCAS uh, list of universities and and. <clears throat> compared them with the fic- rugby fixtures list. Uh, so I looked at Loughborough and Exeter, which had just merged with St. Luke's, which is the P college, um, as my two kind of principal target universities and was offered a place to read agricultural economics at, at Exeter. And that, that again, was a, a, a kind of defining moment uh, for me in terms of my rugby journey because <clears throat> I was, as a fresher, I was the, the only fresher invited down to pre-season um and you know as with these guys who were you know absolute monsters i'd never seen people quite as big as they, they breed them a wee bit bigger down south yeah. compared to up north in scotland or were late developers or something um but you know it, it felt like proper serious serious rugby uh, and it was a real um education you know it was kind of thrown in the deep end and the, the sides that we were playing against in exeter and devon and plymouth you know these sorts of sides you know used to used to see students as fresh meat and an opportunity to you know, be, be a bit of a bully so uh, you had to grow up pretty quickly and learn how to look after yourself in that environment but it it stood me in in really good stead and uh, was a, a very important foundation in my rugby career yeah and, and your parents um were brought up in the war weren't they what what, what kind of influence did your father and your mother have on the man you are today if you look back yeah, I, I, they uh, both served in the war. My my mother was uh, a WAF uh, up in Scotland, and my father served in the infantry in the Hampshire Regiment. <clears throat> um, and they they both went up to Cambridge after the war and, and met there and uh, got married in 1947, I think it was. Um, yeah, very different people, but uh, you know, very incredibly supportive. My my mother was a yeah, a, a lovely woman, very gentle, incredibly strong value set, and 
yeah, incredibly kind and you know, loving mother as, as many mothers are. Um, my dad, you know, I didn't have the the easiest of relationships with my dad, particularly uh, latterly. He didn't. I don't think he really approved of uh, my my choice of uh, choice of wife, but <laughs> which which created a bit of tension. Um, but you know, a very loving grandfather, loving father, and I think uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate. They they provided or created the environment for for me to to thrive and to make my own choices and you know my own mistakes as well, um, rather than forcing me down a certain route, uh, which you know I was extremely grateful for. And so you know, yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, well, no, thank you for that. Um... And, and really, from all your life experiences, and you've had so many uh, varied experiences, a lot of things to celebrate, what would you pick out as a happiest, proudest moment? Uh, and what would you pick out as a darkest, saddest personal moment? And a bit like Rudyard Kipling, as you mentioned, treat those two imposters just the same. Mm. Um, I, I take incredible joy and pride from watching my children play sport um and you know they've all gone on to you know wear a, a blue shirt with a thistle on it in different at different levels so my eldest son played for the scottish clubs against the irish clubs uh, at rugby and uh, my daughter represented scotland in the 2014 commonwealth games and at the 2015 world cup for netball uh, and my two boys two younger boys have both played for scotland at cricket uh, you know they're both spent some time on uh, the books at counties um and, and chris was fortunate enough to play in an, an incredible match in 2018 when scotland defeated england uh, so that was you know a, an interesting moment for me um but you know that gives me an awful lot of pride and joy and and you know i always say to people if you were to offer me the chance of you know winning a grand slam for scotland or watching my kids play sport for scotland i'd, I'd always take the latter you know i take mm. incredible joy and it's it's given me a sense of you know, how my own parents must have felt when they watched me play and uh, had a, an appreciation of that. Mm. Um, in terms of the downside, I, uh, we were talking earlier, unfortunately, my wife has been uh, diagnosed with bowel cancer and has just started a treatment of chemotherapy. And, um, you know, I think that has, you know, been, a, or it was, it was a quite a shock to us because it was quite a quick um event for want of a better word of describing it and i think when you sit in a in a room and the surgeon comes in and you know tells you uh tells you the person you loved and have lived with for the last 30 plus years has, has got cancer that's a a fairly um you know salutary moment um and you know your your world suddenly falls apart and all the plans that you've made of you know to stay together and live together and and you know just get thrown up in the air um, and it's you know really tests your personal resilience. I think the other, you know, the other most challenging thing about it was telling the kids uh, um, about that. And so, you know, I think it's really uh, tested our resilience. And you know, we talk a lot about resilience on our programs, and uh, we talk a lot about how to develop resilience. And um, you know, there's been a been a bit of physician heal thyself in that regard. Mm. Um, so some of the things that you uh, talk to people about, you you find yourself reflecting on. Okay, well, you know, I'm feeling this way. I need to change the way I think about this, and and consequently uh, alter the neurochemistry so that I'll feel differently and behave differently. Um, and I think you know the important thing of, of sort of talking to each other you know my wife and I talking talking to each other about it and not sort of burying either how we feel or or you know what we're concerned about so that uh, we we have these conversations uh in the open and get used to them and and they become a matter of course and I think I think the other point is um you know you you really value and and live each day as it as it comes you know you can't predict what's going to happen and so uh you really live in the moment and don't worry too much about the things that you can't control so it is that piece around you know <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff which is going to be out of our control over the next six months or so going forward let's not worry about that let's worry about the things that we can control and influence and um focus on those and, and work hard to control those things so and i think that that applies to you know the the 
joy of watching kids you know focus on the things you can control and and be in the moment to ex, you know experience and live uh each day as it as it comes mm. well uh, firstly i'm very sorry to hear that uh, i think did you say your wife is called jane um, yes yeah and uh you know my thoughts are with you and jane as you as you go through that um thank you everybody's experience is different but i can relate from personal experiences that we've had um but but no one can really understand what it's like for you but i i suppose my question is when others have got this situation a friend or someone they care about has somebody in their family who goes through what you and your wife are going through right now what would you advise them to do you know because some people don't know what to do and so they don't speak Mm -hmm. to you and other people ring you up and they just muck in and help out what yeah. what what works for you like you know doesn't work for everybody but what, yeah, what would you advise I, I think i think your, your point is absolutely right you know different people react very differently to these situations so you know if i think of a you know, great friend of mine um doddy weir who you know was sadly diagnosed with uh, motor neuron disease and, and died at the back end of last year you know he's just a larger than life character um you know, he was really clear about, you know, <clears throat> living every day as it come as it came uh, and, you know, trying to find a cure for MND. And, and he was very open and positive about, about that. And, um, you know, I, I took my hat off to him to, because I don't think if I was in the same situation as him, I would want to be as public uh, or living my life as publicly as he did. And so, you know, I think different people react in different ways. I mean, I think from from our perspective, you know, we don't want to hide it or, or you know, not talk about it, you know, because that's it's just part of life, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, as they say, the the certainties in life are death and taxes, aren't they? And uh, um, you know, it's it's one of those things. You just <clears throat> we have to be happy and comfortable talking about it because. You know, if, if we bury it, then it's going to make it harder to to deal with and harder to cope with, I think. Um, so, you know, our, our view is, is to try and be as open as you possibly can about these situations and talk about these things. And don't I think it's harder for people who aren't in as close to it, perhaps as Jane or I are. Um, I mean, it's hard for me to talk to Jane sometimes about how she's feeling, um, you know, when you go for your first you go in for the operation or you go for your first batch of chemotherapy or you know all of these things are new and uncertain for her and mm-hmm. you know the new and uncertain for me as well but um you want to be there and be supportive but equally you don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it to build concern or worry so it's it's a hard balance to strike and you know we just have to learn on learn on the go i think yeah well look, thank you for, for talking about that because a lot of people avoid talking about it but these are real things mm. And um, it, it actually is these moments when the best of us can come out as well as the worst of us. And I recently, in December, did the Hoffman process. I don't know if you came across it at all, but it was, yeah. I think, at the eight, in my 60s, the most powerful course I've ever done. And as a result of that, I'm able to have very profound conversations with my brother, Graham, who lived a, a savage knifing attack and someone broke in, tried to burn his, him and the family alive. And there's a court case coming up next month by the person who's accused of doing that. Uh, and, but now I'm having real conversations with Graham. Mm. Uh, he, interesting enough, he, we have a rugby connection too, because he played for the North of England schoolboys against the Australians and he was a number eight. So, right. so rugby's dear to his heart. But I, I, I just say that, having these conversations with your loved ones is the most powerful thing I think we can do, but often we avoid them. Uh, They talk about masterpiece conversations, if you can, with your parents, the kind of conversations that people wish they'd had. Uh, My father was killed when I was two and a half, so I never had those kind of conversations. Mm. My mother died some some 12 years ago, but I did manage to have some good conversations with her. And I I think your point, and it's it's a really strong Stoic philosophy about living every day as it comes and controlling the controllables, what you do have control over and what you don't, it, it's come through in, in your life philosophy. Uh, now that you're at the age you're at, you've got these uh, children, now you've got a granddaughter, uh, age one, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. Uh, very, very special moment. Um, if you went back to visit David Soul age sort of 17 or 18 running around as you were in your white shorts at school uh <laughs> play with the blue top um 
what bit of advice would you give like david don't worry about that really honestly now now i'm now i'm uh 60s um these kind of things don't matter but that does matter what what would advice would you give to a young person now about what really matters and what doesn't yeah no. i th- i think uh i think i think i'd advise them not not to be constrained by self-limiting beliefs um you know i think uh, if I had conversations, different conversations in my career, or, or, or um, you know, as I was, uh, you know, working my way through things, I, I would, ha- I would have perhaps taken a slightly different path, um, which might have been really interesting for us as a family and uh, as a family unit and from a career perspective. But I, I think I probably didn't have the conversations because. I expected the answer to be not the answer that I would want. Um, so I had some self-limiting beliefs around that. And I think, you know, we, we all have self-limiting beliefs, uh, I think. And, and if you can recognize what they are uh, and be conscious of them and then actually try and address them, that can be enormously helpful um i know i would have had a different conversation with someone at diageo uh when i was thinking about you know what next for me mm. um and that could have taken me on a completely different career path and taken us as a family on a completely different uh, life journey which might have been really really interesting um and i kind of you know i don't regret it but you know i would have liked to have had the conversation and, and there was something nagging at me stopping mm. me from having that conversation I, I can relate to that, David. I definitely can. And then my my next thought was this one about one thing you could change in your life if you could live it again, what crucible moments have shaped you. You mentioned already about going down the vet path rather than the languages, but is there anything else that, uh, as you look back, a, a crucible moment that sort of shaped your life and sliding doors moment, it could have been this, it could have been that? Um, I think we we all have mistakes that we've made, which uh we regret and or rue um but i don't think there's uh you know anything fundamental i mean i i you know i'm really i'm really content in my life you know i've i've been very fortunate to marry an amazing woman and uh you know she's been an incredible mother to four outstanding kids who you know are now breeding themselves so mm-hmm. um <clears throat> you know i think there's there's decisions we might have made over certain things which you know god why the hell did you do that but um you know from a sort of seminal moment yeah i think i think you you just have to treat them as learning experiences don't you rather than rue the fact that you've screwed up or made a mistake yeah i I, you'll probably have come across david goggins have you listened to or read any of his books no i haven't haven't. okay so david goggins is a an extreme endurance sporting man in america um and he was the only black boy in a white school where some of the parents were in the Ku Klux Klan. His father was a gangster and beat his mother frequently, almost to death, and beat him up too when he was very small. He stuttered, he lacked confidence, and then eventually turned things around from being massively obese to going to do U.S. Navy SEAL selection. Not just wow. once, hell week, once, twice, three times. And his view was... No such thing as failure. It's just your first attempt. You're going to have another <laughs> go. And um, uh, and he then went on to do Delta selection and Rangers as well, and then become a smoke jumper. But he does these incredible endurance events and cycling 444 miles in two days and running through the night, but, you know, constant you know, legs that dripping blood and things and carries on going. Yeah. And so his books are, are are very inspiring. I would one day love to interview him. But his first book was Can't Hurt Me, which after all the abuse he went through, I think he learned to cope with anything. Whatever the seals instructors threw at him in the freezing yeah. water, he didn't, he didn't, they couldn't hurt him. And then his his other book he's just written is Never Finished. Um and, and I think uh, of that with some of the things that you've done. Um I'm going to go around the what we call the Inspiring Leadership Compass, some of the research that we did about what makes inspiring men and women. Uh, you obviously read and studied and created your own models, so many different models of leadership, and, and particularly the one on inclusive leadership, which I do uh, share up and sign up with mm-hmm. very much your approach there. But if, if you look at the first one, MQ, moral question, you know, the values, beliefs, and you have some strong ones. I'm always intrigued, not for you specifically, but people who are in the industry, you know, those who used to be or still are, 
in the tobacco industry and the doctors in their white coats going, I smoke camel cigarettes and they're very good for you, smoke them. Um, and then the whole marketing push on alcohol, you know, this is really good for you, drink. And then, of course, my mother, uh, my uh, my late mother-in-law was an alcoholic. You know, she she was reliant on it. And we all went to Al-Anon. And you see the damage that alcohol can do as well as the happy side of it. I was in the military and everybody was a big force fed, you know, happy hours and being locked mm. in a room with a crate of beer to drink it. Um, uh, so I just wonder from the sort of moral integrity point of view, particularly where you've got companies like Pepsi and Danone and others pushing, um, you know, uh, ultra high processed foods, which, of course, are causing problems with diabetes and cancer. One percent of the population was obese in the UK in 1950. Now it's 23.5 percent. Um, and what's changed? Ultra high, high processed foods and Cokes and Pepsis. So how how do people do, in your mind in the drinks industry cope with knowing the dark side as well as the, the fun side? Well, I think, you know, it's it's. 20 plus years since I was at Diageo, but, um, you know, we still do some work with some of the Scotch whiskey companies uh, up here. You know, I think <clears throat> corporately they have a very strong uh, ethos around everything in moderation. Uh, <clears throat> and they, you know, contribute to the Portman Group, which is uh, the, the kind of the industry body to uh, that kind of almost regulates that. Um and they're very conscious of, you know, not <clears throat> sponsoring underage or supporting underage drinking or endorsing those sorts of things. So they, you know, they do have a, a moral You know, at the end of the day, as you say, um, addiction of that nature leads to problems. Um, as in the same way that, uh, you know, betting leads to, mm. you know, incredible problems. And and you know, for me, I think that that is, you know, a, an industry which could do with a little bit more uh, regulation and and constraint uh, in its advertising. Um, I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tough one to, to look at. You know, you talked about obesity. Obesity is a very significant contributor to cancer. And yet, um, you know, Stand Up to Cancer support the Great British Bake Off, which is all about baking cakes which make you fat you know so the, mm -hmm. there seems to be an ethical dilemma i think in, in almost everything uh, that you come across you know i know that ci uk uh, don't invest in i think it's either dhl or fedex because they transport uh, filters which are used in the tobacco industry so you know on the one hand you see scrutiny around ethical investment you know coming under you know incredible pressure but on the other hand they're quite happy to support something which you know, makes you makes you fat because it's a uh, it's populist and it, it it's great for you know earning some money. Mm. So, you know, I think we're faced with these sorts of dilemmas and judgments, you know, wherever wherever we're going to be. And I think you know you talked about integrity that and, and moral quotient. Yeah, you know, I think that integrity <clears throat> is really important and being able to look in the mirror and say, have I done the right thing? Uh, by myself, by my organisation, by my values at the end of the day uh, is a really important thing to be comfortable with. I think it is. And, and it was triggered. I was I'm listening to I'm dyslexic. So I listen to lots of audiobooks rather than reading them. But at the moment I'm listening to Henry Dimbleby on Ravenous with uh, Jemima Lewis about how to get ourselves and our planet into shape. Mm -hmm. And he did the he wrote the uh, the paper, which Boris then you know, as usual with most Boris things, he he sort of steamrolled it over it and all that we could do with a sugar and salt tax, which mm. we still allow these companies to produce stuff. But, but just like the sugar tax reduced the amount of sugar that was in things, we could have done an awful lot. And, and he completely dodged dealing with the issue. But it is interesting about the impact on the planet. And I recommend it to uh, to people listening, Ravenous by Henry Dimbleby. Um Thank you for, for that, uh, David. That's a very, uh, very interesting one. Purpose is the next one, PQ. Uh, I mean, you've had a life full of purpose, whether it be, you know, uh, captaining the uh, Scottish rugby team or the executive coaching that you've done and setting up the uh, the school of, for CEOs. How would you encapture people who are trying to think about a life purpose and they're, they're drifting a bit and, you know, you found purpose, but... But how would you advise someone if there was a, a tip or something you could, I mean, it's a, it's a big topic, but if you were to give a, you know, one top tip about getting meaning and purpose in your life. 
Yeah, as you say, it is a big topic. I, I did some work on it when, when I was on a programme with uh, Sue Knight many years ago. Mm. Uh, and I got very stuck trying to figure out what my purpose was. Um, and, you know, I think you've got to be prepared to, to get stuck and work through it. Um, because when you do work through it, it can be incredibly simple. And, you know, organisations are looking at purpose now and and i'm always astounded by organizations that come up with a really simple clear memorable purpose um because very often they are the most you know, unsexy organizations that you, you know you might you might come across and and so it is well worth the effort uh getting stuck because when you come out the other side uh, the value that it creates is is fantastic and we talked about talked about resilience you know having um, you know, a clear purpose in life really helps your resilience because it provides you with that north star to to sort of anchor yourself to. Yeah, no, love I love that combination that that link from purpose to resilience, which actually also links onto health quotient, which is the next one. Um, you more than anybody, particularly with what I'm afraid you're going through with Jane, your wife, um, are very aware of your our own health and our, our human body's fallibility to illnesses and all that goes on. But what tips would you give for for people listening about you know tip on your physical health, which has been very important to you throughout your life, and one on looking after your mental health? Well, I think I think um, there's far more uh, scrutiny now on under on wellness in organisations, and so you know physical health has become you know increasingly. Up, up organizations agenda i think probably driven by the pandemic where you know people were concerned about burnout and you know the, the the kind of existential threat that you know covid brought to the world um so i think wellness is really important and, and it, it encompasses everything from you know diet to fitness to uh sleep to um you know drinking and all the things we've, we've touched on uh, and and so i think being conscious of the impact of uh, kind of physiological wellness <clears throat> and you know, mental wellness because they are they, they are inextricably linked. As you know, it was Juvenal I think who said you know sound mind and sound body. Um, you know, all those years ago. So the if the Romans got it, you know, nothing's changed much. Um, and and you know, we have so much technology that can support us with that to to act as our conscience. You know, to say you need to do a few more steps this week or you know it's time you went back to the gym or you didn't sleep particularly well you shouldn't have had that third glass of wine or what you know whatever it is um you know use technology to help us uh, in this and and you know i think generally we need to be kind to ourselves mm. um uh, because i think sometimes we we beat ourselves into a pulp you know trying to do the right thing for our organizations whereas actually what we should really be doing is being kind and resourceful to ourselves and you know giving ourselves the best chance for us to be at our best yeah no it's very interesting and particularly at the stage that you and I are at where we every now and again need a challenge I've just accepted a challenge this morning where I'm going to cycle 600 kilometers over five days with my friend Adam Fox Edwards who was uh in the uh a tornado pilot in the Gulf War, and we've stayed friends from PricewaterhouseCoopers. And uh, so it's raising money for Help for Heroes and also for the Inspiring Leadership Foundation for the Violence Against Women and Girls. We're going to be cycling alongside many of the veterans, people who've lost limbs and been injured in wars, uh, to raise money for Help for Heroes. But that suddenly makes me realise, A, I'm going to have to get a good bike, and B, I'm going to have to get on that bike and cycle <laughs> a lot in the remaining seven weeks before it happens. So, But it is good having a goal. Um, EQ is the next one. You spoke well about EQ and being almost like your number one thing about inspiring leaders that you've met. If you were to give people who are listening, who are super clever people listening, but but maybe they've under-indexed on EQ and not quite developed it. In your experience, what's an easy win for people to, to start to develop? Because it, it, it is something you can develop. It's not you're born with it. That's what it is. What, yeah. what, what's your tip about developing EQ? Well, I, I think first understand what it is, um, because I think very often when you talk about emotional intelligence, people uh, equate that to empathy, 
And empathy is one facet of it. You know, it depends on the models that you look at, whether it's Reuven Baron's or Daniel Goleman's or, um, you know, there are, other, there are other models and there's a model that we use, um, which has 10 facets, you know, Empathy is one of them. Self-awareness is another. You know, self-confidence, self-reliance, uh, self-control, uh, you know, adaptability, optimism. You know, we the research tells us that you know when they when they surveyed successful leaders, ninety percent of them scored highly on optimism, um, <clears throat> self-actualization. You know, all of these sort of things are facets of uh, emotional intelligence, and of course. You know, if you over-index on one or more of them, you know, a strength can become a weakness. You know, for example, if if you score highly on too highly on self-control, no one will ever know what you're feeling yeah. because you're always under so much control. Uh, you know, people won't know. Conversely, if if you think about straightforwardness as a facet of emotional intelligence, you know, emotionally intelligent people are straightforward. They they say say it how it is. But if you're too straightforward, you know that that borders into into being blunt. So so I'd say understand you know what makes up emotional intelligence and and yeah you know, the first part of that any learning cycle is to develop some self awareness. So be clear about where you have the opportunities to develop. Um, because in doing that, you you shift from a state of unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence yeah. and once you're there you've got choice around you know what you do you are how you act how you behave to become consciously competent yeah uh, and yeah the more you practice the more intuitive it becomes lovely and it's a very nice way of describing it i i had the pleasure of working for many years with Ruben baron um he helped to shape our compass model uh and almost caught up with him when i was in israel uh, a couple of months ago uh, but he, he's now uh, in his late 70s or almost 80. I think he's about to be 80. But a very interesting guy fought in four or three or four Arab-Israeli wars and saw battlefield shock and what happened to people and therefore studied it. And, and of course, uh, Daniel Goldman made something of his work in the background of the psychometric and the two worked so well together. Um, taking your earlier comment about inclusive leadership, the next one is what we call CQ, collaborative, cognitive and cultural intelligence. That, that that sort of respect for diversity, equality, and inclusion. What's your your top tip? It, it's it's a very topical issue. It's salient at the moment uh, for people to be much better at being inclusive. Uh, what would what would be a good tip you'd give people? Yeah, I think well, we 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 have our own model uh, around inclusive leadership, which is very simple and straightforward. Um, it's an ABC model. Um, you know, I like things in threes. I like things that, which are a simple moniker that I can remember. Um, but I'm going to take it in, in reverse order. So C, C is curiosity. Mm. You know, I think people have to be curious, uh, curious about themselves and about others. So, you know, we, we know we all have biases. Um, <clears throat> so we need to understand what our biases are and what the consequences of those biases playing out are. Um, because, again, if we can bring the unconscious to the conscious, we can then actually make significant change in terms of how we act, act and behave. Uh, and of course, being curious about others, being curious about other cultures, other people, you know, what, what's important to them? What are their values and beliefs? Uh, you know, what environment do they thrive in or what, what environment stifles them? Uh, and, and so really understanding how you can create the environment for others to be at their best is really important. And B stands for behaviours, which is pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, you know, inclusive behaviours, showing that you, you accept, value, support, <clears throat> and, you know, the contribution of others. Um, and that's not to say you have to agree with it. You know, I think you've got to create the right environment. You've got to create the psychologically safe environment so that you can have constructive conflict or positive disagreement. But but you know that that is not going to be taken personally. It's for the good of the organisation, for the good of the team, for the good of <clears throat> um, you know, whoever it is. That, that, so, so you're going to get to the right decision. So that thinking about what are inclusive behaviours. And finally, the A stands for accountability. It's about holding people to account and calling out <clears throat> people when they aren't behaving in an inclusive way or a collaborative way, as you said, uh, and being comfortable to, to hold 
anyone in the organization to account, irrespective of what level you are. Uh, and that can be quite a challenge if you're you know, a junior or a subordinate and you're seeing your leader or your boss displaying non-inclusive behaviors. You know, that's quite a tough call. But, you know, it's absolutely critical if you're going to make a difference. I love that ABC. It's a very nice, very clear model. Accountability, behaviors, and curiosity, and it resonates strongly. Uh, I have a, an offsite I'm doing with a team next week, and I think that would be very pertinent for what uh, behaviors they need to show. Uh, next, resilience that we've talked about, and that link between resilience, health, and also purpose as well. What would be a top tip for for people? having greater resilience. And as you say, you can't, you've got to be careful not to over-index because you can just drive yourself goal-obsessed and then die on Mount Everest because you're going for the summit when actually you should have turned back at four o'clock, but you're still mm. heading for the summit at six at mm. night. Mm. Uh, what would be your, your tip on resilience and also managing that? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'm a great believer in the, you know, understanding some of the neurochemistry that, that underpins how we feel. Uh, and understanding you know what's going on in our brain you know without saying that I'm a, a neuroscientist um because I certainly wouldn't aspire well wouldn't uh, consider myself that um but you know in, in kind of learning about you know how our brain operates uh, and you know how our reptilian brain can hijack our prefrontal cortex and stop us from making logical rational decisions uh you know that's a really important um skill and attribute to master so for me resilience is about understanding the think feel behave sequence um <clears throat> and recognizing that the neurochem neurochemistry will change and will impact how we sometimes think about a situation and that and that then drives the the, the emotional response and consequently our behavioral response which is driven by how we're feeling so uh, understanding that is is really key to I think building and developing resilience um, and knowing the things which are going to you know kick us off course as well. Mm, very good, very good. Well, brand is the next one, um, the penultimate one before legacy. Uh, and you spend a lot of time doing psychometrics with people and doing three hundred and sixty with them. What have you found uh, the benefits of leaders doing three hundred and sixty, and and whether you're bought into it or not? What's what's your view on three hundred and sixties and how useful it is? to get a, a view on your own brand <clears throat> say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting. We had uh, a CEO of a FTSE 50 company talking on one of our programs. And he said, uh, you know, I have a 360 done on me uh, by my leadership team every, every year uh, and I publish it. Uh, so I publish, you know, what people have said about me Um and I'm really clear about what my what my work ons are for for the year. Um, so you know, I, I'm a I think 360s are a very useful tool to um, develop self awareness. Uh, and it's back to that point: if you are aware of your blind spots, you can do something about them. And so if you know how you're perceived by your team, your in your organization, then you can either choose to change or not, depending on what you're what your uh, desires and ambitions are. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's okay not to change. Mm. You, know, it's, uh, you might not want to. You might want to be known as the tyrant or the, the cost cutter or, or whatever the 360 says about you. So, But I, I do think they're really useful tools. And, you know, we've developed a tool uh, to specifically for our inclusive leadership model. Yeah, great. Okay. And the, the final one before we go on to executive teams and book and then top tip would be legacy. I mean, you've you've left a legacy in your lifetime already. If you do nothing more, you uh, unlike my sergeant major said, sir, congratulations, you're a legacy in your own lunchtime. <laughs> and I think that was an insult, but uh you you are a, a, a legacy in, in your own lifetime. But but as people are thinking about what legacy they want to leave, what would be your tip on leaving a legacy, leaving things better than you found them, stewardship, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, th I think it's in terms of that, it's it's yeah, it's really important to focus on the things that are important in life. You know, so it's not about you know what what how many businesses you've sold or um, you know the wealth that you've created. It's about you know we're put on this planet to procreate and you know our biological you know 
desires here are, are, are actually to you know create a next generation and i think i think that is the most important thing about a legacy creating a next generation which holds good values uh, and you know leaves the planet in a better place than they, they arrived in it yeah that's a lovely one now we're on to teams executive teams but you've been in teams from back at school whether it's hockey cricket <laughs> rugby whatever you've always been forming teams captaining teams um but in business when someone listening has a toxic team or an individual in a team that's really gone toxic what's your top tip on what you know if there's many things they can do but what would you briefly advise them to start thinking about doing when they, when things have gone toxic or they've inherited something toxic yeah i i i think that is a a really challenging issue because i think um you know, it, it obviously depends on the context and the situation and the individuals in, in, in concern. But, uh, you know, particularly if, if the individual uh, is a high performer and yet c- contributing to a toxic culture, you, you've got a call to make in, in terms of what's important to you. So the first thing you need to do is, is decide whether performance or culture is, uh, is most important. Well, let, let me let me make it, you know, zone it in on on, on an example, which might be helpful. Uh, successful team, um, an individual whose team is doing well, he, he's looking down on his team and they they work well for him. But he really doesn't care about the team he's part of. And he often sort of throws social hand grenades into the room, and closes the door and undermines the, the leader and the team and the event they're trying to do. What would you do about someone like that who thinks they're the smartest person in the room and they don't need to do this kind of thing? And it's it's a bit, you know, you know, just paying lip service to that. What what would you do about someone like that? Well, I'm I'm a great believer to uh, you know, you can either change the people or you can change the people. Mm. Um and I'm a great believer that it's important to give people the opportunity to change. Um so making them aware of their of the consequences and impact of their behaviors and, and making them really clear about and giving a clear understanding of you know the detrimental effect that they're having on the team that they're a, a member of um and you know why it's important that they might change uh, and the consequences of them potentially changing on the on the broader team um and i think you you know you've got to be really clear in that in that messaging and then if they don't then You've got a you've got a tough decision to make. You've got a that's when you say, okay, well, actually, this isn't acceptable, and what I'm not prepared to tolerate is, you know, this sort of behaviour in in my team. So mm-hmm. they would have to go, in my view. Yeah, and, and I think it's always interesting in organisations. More often than not, people are saying, oh, I wonder why they didn't. I wonder why they took so long to get rid of that person. They always do, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, time and again, they 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 delay and dither. They don't want to upset things. But people are seeing the leader lacking courage. They're going, yeah. why are they accepting yeah. this toxic behavior? He's not yeah. living our values, yeah. but yet he's letting him off because he makes a lot of money. Yeah. But that's not the only value that matters yeah. to him. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We, we have saying it. Never met anyone who wishes they waited a bit longer before they fired someone. Yeah, that's very, very good saying. I love that one. Definitely. Okay. Well, look, we're uh, now onto the favorite book and then your top tip. Um, what would be a favorite book you'd recommend people to read or listen that you've enjoyed recently, David? Oh, gosh, there's there's so many. Um, I mean, I think Jim Collins's book, Good to Great, is timeless. Uh, and I can constantly refer back to Level 5 Leadership, the chap on, chapter on Level 5 Leadership and that. Um there's a terrific book by Owen Eastwood uh, called Belonging, which is about creating a culture of belonging. Owen's a super guy. He's a New Zealander uh, with a Maori background. And he, he talks a lot about the Maori background and how they create a sense of belonging and the uh, issues of whakapapa, which is uh, you know a united um, chain of people. And it's, it's about their moment in the sun. Um I'm a big fan of Joanne Lippmann as well, um, who's written a book called Win Win, uh, When Business Works for Women and Works for Everyone. That's how it's published in the UK. She's just kind of just written another book called Next, which is about career transitions. 
um and you know super super writer um yeah. so those would those would be the three that i'd sorry i, I should only give me one but they'd be no, the, no, no, they're, the three they're all good. so belonging um good to great and win-win plus next if you want to have this i will yeah. i'll definitely be dipping to those so um david would you introduce yourself it's going to be a standalone clip now just say who you are and what you're currently doing and give us your two minute top leadership tip please Sure. So uh, I'm David Soule. I'm managing partner of the School for CEOs and chairman of Worldwide Cancer Research. Uh, my top tip, um, I think uh, for leaders, it's about having uh, the confidence and courage to admit they've made a mistake or they don't know the answer to something. Um, we have to remember it's about humility and humanity. Um, because we're human beings rather than human doings. So uh, no one has all the answers, but if you have the humility uh, and confidence, you'll be able to ask the right questions to get them. Yeah, I love that one. Well, David Solth, OBE, thank you very much indeed for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and, and a personal ambition of mine to have time with you because I've always admired you from afar. So David, thank you for thank your you. contribution. Been a pleasure. Thanks, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.